Isaiah 41. If you need a Bible, looks like Bud is on the move to help you out. Isaiah 41. We're one chapter into this new section in the book of Isaiah. So we're still getting used to the idea. Isaiah is no longer writing to the Judah that he lives in. He's no longer writing to the, the people of his lifetime. Rather, he's writing to those who are going to be dragged out of Judah into captivity by the Babylonians beginning in 607, continuing until 586 BC. Talked about this just by way of reminder. <clears throat> but a useful reminder because chapter 40 forward, we're going to see God through Isaiah encouraging and strengthening and comforting his people. That's going to be a through line. And it's not going to make sense unless we keep in mind this is to Jewish people, God's people, in exile. Last week, actually last week and the week before both, we read God say, verse 1 of chapter 40, Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And we pointed out that's in the prophetic past tense. That's God through Isaiah speaking as if something has already happened that hasn't happened yet. God does that. He does that frequently. Because when God says it, that settles it, right? God says so. It's as good as done. But it begs the question, as Isaiah speaks these things, and as people a century and a half after Isaiah read these things, how, God? How will these things be done? And so tonight, God's going to fill in a little detail. How could such a thing happen? How could we be delivered from this captivity? How could we be delivered from the hands of so strong, so powerful an adversary? And on the one hand, we're tempted to spiritualize things and say, well, isn't it enough that God said that it would happen? But God is sympathetic in our weaknesses, isn't he? And thank you, Jesus, that you are. He knows that it would be a little more comforting, the encouragement would be a little more encouraging if he peeled back and offered at least a glimpse of the means and the mechanism by which he's going to accomplish these promises. How will this miracle unfold? God is going to underline tonight the idea that he is enough. He's going to leave us with no doubt about that, but he's also going to give us a glimpse how he intends to be enough for his people Israel. Chapter 41, verse 1. Keep silence before me, O coastlands. God speaking through Isaiah. And let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let, then let them speak. Let us come near together, the people and me, for judgment. This is one of those times that we see in prophetic scripture. God is convening a trial. Silence. When God calls for silence, it's, it's often as if a bailiff is calling a courtroom to order. Shh. Listen to the judge. God is calling together the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, the peoples, 
And he's warning them as he does, renew your strength. You're going to need it if you hope to prevail against me. Verse 2, who raised up one from the east? God's going to go first. He's going to present his case first because he's God and he gets to do that. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? This is still in the prophetic past tense. God is speaking about something that hasn't happened yet. It's 150 years in the future from the time Isaiah is writing. And he's talking about someone who hasn't even been born at the time that Isaiah is writing. He's talking about Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian. He's the king from the east. God speaks of here in verse 2. Wait, 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 some might say. If you know a little bit of history, if you know a little bit about Cyrus, I don't know if that can be the case. Cyrus, is, he wasn't exactly the most righteous guy, which is true, and also not what the Holy Spirit just said. God said, well, he asked, who in righteousness called him to his feet? God called Cyrus in righteousness, in other words, on a mission of righteousness, on a mission of salvation. Righteousness and salvation, often used as synonyms in Isaiah, often used interchangeably, righteousness and salvation. I'm going to use Cyrus, King Cyrus, God is announcing, as my instrument to effect the salvation, the deliverance, of captive Israel. Some rabbis disagree. Some rabbis quibble a little bit and they say, well, I'm not sure. I think maybe the one in view here, the one from the east is Abraham because God called him out of the east, out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the land. That's, that's true, but it doesn't hold up with what God is going to say next, not only in this chapter, but in coming chapters. And yet I wonder if they're maybe not pointing at nothing. God doesn't do anything by accident. And is the echo, the resonance with Abraham here, maybe deliberate? Maybe is it a nod and a wink by God saying, Cyrus is my instrument through whom I'll honor my covenant with Abraham, another person I call down of the east. Is Cyrus the one through whom I will fulfill or continue fulfilling my promises to my people about the land? Maybe. Wouldn't surprise me. God doesn't do anything by accident. But verse 3, make no mistake, this is Cyrus. Cyrus who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Against overwhelming odds, the idea is, Cyrus moves battle after battle unharmed. On the front lines, battle after battle, he's uninjured, building his empire. Nation by nation, parcel of real estate by parcel, until he's ready for a new conquest. A place that his feet has never, have never touched, verse 3. He crosses the Tigris River, conquering Sardis in 546 B.C., positioning himself to defeat the Babylonian Empire. And this is where that map that we were loading at the last minute will come in handy if we could throw that up there. In 546, 
he conquers Sardis, which is the capital of Lydia. So by extension, conquers Lydia and positions himself to drive down and conquer the Babylonian Empire. We'll talk more about that before we're done. But who engineered Cyrus's victory? The same one who's describing it a century and a half before it happens. Verse 4, who has performed it and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning? Who is it that speaks in prophecy? Who tells history before it happens? I, the Lord, am the first. And with the last, I am he. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Remember the last week, by the way, when God speaks of himself as the Lord, as Yahweh, in the, lower, in the small capitals, second part of verse 4, I the Lord, he's almost always referring to himself as the covenant-keeping God. And here, too, he's saying, who does this? Who did this? Who will do this? The one who said that he would. The one who promised to defend and preserve Israel. Now, by the way, God continues in verse 5, while I was doing that, what were you doing? He says to the nations that he's convened, the nations that he's gathered to his courtroom. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. The idea here is that the leaders of Babylon, the army of Babylon, even the gods of Babylon were caught off guard. They responded to Cyrus's attack as it happened. The gods gave them no warning. In contrast to the true and living God, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who gave his people 15 decades of warning. What does that say, God is asking, about who I am, the God that Israel worships, compared to who the Babylonians worship? What does that say about the God of Israel compared to the powers behind the throne of Babylon? Remember God's intention here in Isaiah, in the second half of Isaiah, is to encourage captive Israel. He's told them already, and he's telling them again, I said I won't let you be destroyed. I said I was going to judge you, but not destroy you. I promised to deliver you. And I know that you're asking, why should we believe you? He knows that's the question on the heart of his people. And he's answering that question. Remember who I am. You've seen my faithfulness before. And, and how does that compare to the faithfulness of the gods of other nations? You've seen my faithfulness before. And verse 6, you're going to see it again when Cyrus makes his move against Babylon. Verse 6, everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. Again, the prophetic past tense, speaking of the future as if it's happened. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying it's ready for the soldering, that he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. As Cyrus is marching, God says, the Babylonians are going to turn to their gods 
And they're going to call together the craftsmen and the goldsmiths, and they'll make more gods, and they'll compliment each other. Well, that's a very good god you made. Oh, well, why, thank you, and I like your god very much. And your god hardly ever falls over, but here, let me, let me tap a peg in place so that it'll be even more sturdy. Great, well, let me add a little weight to the base of your god so, so he won't fall over either. And meanwhile, while they're propping up their gods so they don't topple, Cyrus continues to advance, sent by God to punish Babylon and to reveal the inherent weakness, the powerlessness of the gods of Babylon. I'm a basketball player, a bas well, not anymore, I was. Speaking about the prophetic past tense or something like that. But, but a lot of the great players of history were trash talkers. Bird, Jordan, Kevin Garnett, even, even Magic would get on and on sometimes. Call the shot before they made it, even before the offense was set. While still at the defensive end of the court, say to the player guarding them, here's what's going to happen the next time we have the ball. I'm going to be on the left-hand side, and I'm going to get the ball, and here's what I'm going to do with it, and I'm going to shoot from this spot, and I'm going to shoot with my left hand, and you're not going to be able to stop me. I'm telling you exactly what I'm going to do, and you're not going to be able to stop me. And, and, and the great ones were great because they couldn't be stopped. God is doing that. He's doing something very, very much like that. He's saying, next to me, the gods of Babylon are a bunch of punks. They're fakes, they're posers, they're phonies. I'm telling them my move. I'm going to spin left, and it's going to be a finger roll, and they still won't be able to stop it. But Israel, he continues, verse 8, you're my people. You're my guys, and I'm for you. I'm against them. I'm for you. Verse 8, Israel, you're my servant. Jacob, who I've chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Think about that. <clears throat> God is saying Abraham was my friend, and you're his descendants. What an, what a, what an honor. What a singular privilege to be called a friend of God. No one else in the Old Testament is, is given that honorific. Abraham is here, 2 Chronicles 20. It's affirmed in James chapter 2. Even the Muslims recognize that Abraham was a friend of God and the Jews the descendants of one whom God called friend. Who else gets to claim that title? We do. We'll come back to that before we're done. Verse 9. You whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you're my servant. I've chosen you and have not cast you away. Because I said I wouldn't. Because I said I would keep my promise to your ancestor Abraham. I said I was going to bring a mighty people out of his loins. I said I was going to give him a, a, an enormous parcel of real estate. And I'm going to keep those promises. And I'm going to keep it through you, God continues, because that's our relationship. So verse 10, fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a word there that 
appears in every ver or in every line of the verse in the Hebrew. It's only brought over in the English once. That word yes. Yes, surely, without question. It's emphatic. Surely I will do this. Without question, I'll do this. Of course I'll do this. Without fail, I'll do this. This is what it means for you to be my people. This is what it is to be your God. As opposed to those who aren't my people. As opposed to those, verse 11, who come against my people. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, the promise-keeping God, the covenant-keeper God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Did you notice what just happened? The lens just changed, didn't it? Like when you're in high school and you were playing with the microscope and you flipped the lens and it went from super, super close into, oh, whoa, okay, now I'm looking from further away. We just shifted from relatively near-term prophecy. Century and a half is relatively near-term when it comes to prophecy. We just shifted from near-term prophecy to long-term prophecy to yet future prophecy. How do we know? Look again at verse 12. Your enemies, you shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. Israel's going to look for her enemies when God is done doing what he's going to do and won't find any. It will be as if they never existed. That's not the reality after Cyrus conquers the Babylonian Empire and releases captive Israel to go back to the land. There are still enemies in Babylon. There are still enemies when Israel goes back to the land. We read about them in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? So this must be speaking of something longer term. Well, wait, what if we spiritualize it? What if we say that it'll be as if Israel doesn't have any enemies? Now, that doesn't work either. We, you, can, you can try it, but that wasn't Israel's experience. They very much feared the enemies that, that lay before them, even when the enemies weren't the enemies, even when God said you shouldn't fear them. Israel still feared them, very conscious of them, it was not at all as if they didn't exist. So this is not what happens when Cyrus defeats the Babylonian Empire, but it's what will happen when Israel is again surrounded and subjugated by a future Babylonian Empire, a world empire with Antichrist as its leader and Babylon as its headquarters. Israel will once again be helpless, even more so, in human terms, hopeless. Israel will be as a worm, verse 14. Worm doesn't mean something that's disgusting in this context. The word is tola in Hebrew. It's used of Job after Job loses everything. He's racked with sores. He's absolutely alone, except for the friends who weren't really friends. <laughs> the word tola is used of Christ in Psalm 22, verse 6. Christ on the cross, forsaken 
by his disciples, forsaken even by God, with nothing left to do but die. The word worm in verse 14 refers to a helpless, hopeless, forsaken condition. That's going to be you, God says of Israel, just like it was Jesus, just like it was Job before him. But like Jesus and like Job before him, you too will be raised up. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I think the implication is your Redeemer will be the Holy One of Israel, or I will help you by your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The word there is familiar to us. It's goel. And goel is one of those wonderful word studies because it can mean the avenger of blood, as it does in Numbers 35. It can be the one who redeems a slave, as it does in Leviticus 25. It can be the one who redeems land back to a family, as it does in Ruth. Jesus performs all three functions as the redeemer of Israel. Israel will one day, God says, be redeemed by Jesus. And in that day, verse 15, Behold, I'll make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Mountains usually in prophetic literature point us to political powers, the nations in other words. When future Israel is utterly helpless, God will fight for Israel and will anoint her to fight for herself. Shades of Zechariah 12 here. Zechariah 12, 7, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be that in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Same event, some of the same language, and exactly the same outcome. You shall glory, I'm sorry, you shall rejoice in the Lord, verse 16, and glory in the Holy One of Israel. What will it be like afterwards? Verse 17, the poor and needy seek water, but there's none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. <coughs> Excuse me. The poor and needy, when those two words appear together, it usually in Isaiah refers to the faithful remnant of Israel, those who resist Antichrist, those who refuse the mark of the beast, those who endure persecution. It's they that the Lord God will hear. It was they that the God of Israel will not forsake. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Some read these two verses as taking a step back, as God miraculously providing for the believing remnant in the wilderness when they flee Antichrist, 
when they take shelter in the mountains, unable to buy and sell, unable to bring much with them. God provides miraculously for them in the wilderness as he did the children of Israel in the wilderness centuries earlier. I can't prove that's wrong. There's a certain appeal to it. But even if it does mean that, even if God is taking a step back and saying, I'm going to provide for them during the tribulation, even if it does mean that, it means more than that, because look where it goes next. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I'll settle in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. So this is a longer term thing. This isn't short term provision. This is a long term monument, perhaps provision, but also testimony, that they might see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. It's also possible to read this spiritually as well as physically. We know from other passages that this is what the millennial kingdom is like. There is fruitfulness in the wilderness. God is reversing the curse. There is abundance in the desert. But if you flip forward a couple chapters to chapter 43, we read, some, I'm sorry, chapter 44, we read something provocative in verse 3. I'll pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They'll spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I'm the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. So there's a basis just a couple chapters away to read this both physically and spiritually. The renewal of the land, the renewal of the hearts spiritually. So, back to verse 40, I'm sorry, chapter 41 and verse 21. Having said all that, God says the prosecution rests. Remember, he, he called the nations of the world together as a courtroom. Called by God, who poses the question, who are you? Not just Babylon, but all of you. Who are you that my people Israel should be afraid of you? Verse 21, present your case, says the Lord. The prosecution rests. Now it's your turn. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. You've attacked and abused my people, descendants of my friend, for one reason, because I allowed it. In fact, I ordained it. I said I would do it before I did it, Isaiah 39 and elsewhere. I said I was going to do it and I did it. You were the means by which I did it. But now I'm telling you what I'm going to do next. What are you going to do next? What do you have to say? Verse 22, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us the things that come. Go ahead. Prophesy what you're going to do next. No, God says. You don't want to? Okay, give me an example of when you have prophesied something and it's come to pass. Still nothing. Verse 23, show us the things that are to come hereafter that we might know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil. Pick something. Prophesy something. Bring it to pass. We're waiting. 
Do good or evil that we might be dismayed and see it together. Prove me wrong. Make me sad, God says. But they don't have anything to say. And so God says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we rest our case. Verse 24, indeed you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Your idols are nothing. The people who made them are nothing. And the people who follow them are worse than nothing. They'll come to nothing. And so the sentence, if this is a courtroom, the prosecution has presented a case, the defense stood mute, well then by default, the, the, the verdict is for God, for the prosecution. The sentence, I raised up one from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. We're back to a prophecy of Cyprus, uh, Cyrus here. Another image woven into it, the potter and the clay that reminds us that the king of Persia will be God's chosen instrument carrying out God's will, God's judgment. But if you're reading carefully, you should say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Back in verse 2, God said that Cyrus came from the east. Yeah, he just said that here from the rising of the sun. Sun rises in the east. But it also says, I've raised up one from the north. This is God signing his name at the end of this passage. The passage is, this, this, this whole chapter is one in which God says that he alone is the God of prophecy. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who speaks and then brings it to pass, the things that he has spoken. God's going to underline that even more in these closing verses by attaching even more specificity to the prophecy that he already has. Cyrus, yes, we think of him as the king of Persia. And let's, hey, the map's still up there, cool. And we think of Persia as being to the east of Babylon. And that's true. But, and this map is actually a little unfortunate because it places media here. It's more properly up in that direction. Why is that important? Because Cyrus's mother was the daughter of the king of Media, which allowed Cyrus to unite the Medes and the Persians into the Medo-Persian Empire. So, he fulfills both. He comes from the east and from the north. But wait, God's not done. Still verse 25, he shall come, he, from the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. And we know Cyrus does that as well. In Ezra, we read his decree, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all of his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem." Interestingly, in the late 1800s, archaeology confirmed this. Not that we need it, but other people 
like it when extra biblical sources confirm what's in scripture. If, if, if you want to dig into this, Google something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is something that was recovered in the late 1800s, speaking of this and other decrees of Cyrus. Not in the exact words, but the exact same idea. Cyrus saying, in my benevolence, I, I see fit to return people to their homelands, including, and then he goes on to, with language that specifies the Jewish people, calling God by name. God's going to have more to say about Cyrus before we're done. But God's point here, verse 26, can the Babylonians' idols do this? Can any other nation's gods declare the end from the beginning and bring it to pass like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I don't think so, says God. Who has declared from the beginning that we might know and former times that we might say he is righteous? Surely there's no one who shows. Surely there's no one who declares. Surely there's no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I'll give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Indeed, they're all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Prophecy's cool. And the application of prophecy is cool. Because that's when we can spiritualize what we're reading and, 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 and enjoy the freedom to do so. Can't spiritualize the interpretation. That's bad hermeneutics. That's a whole, whole new set of hermeneutical rules invented by scholars who didn't have the faith to believe that God meant what he said about Israel. That God would restore Israel from exile after 70 A.D., because they didn't have the faith to believe that. They had to come up with a whole different set of ways to read prophecy that spiritualized around that. We have no such temptation because we see Israel regathered in the land. We don't even have to walk by faith. We can walk by sight on that. But it's to us, God, that says the kingdom of God is in you. To we as his church. He says to his disciples, Jesus does, the kingdom of God is in you. And so we can ask ourselves, in what respect do these words apply to us? Verse 15, mountains in verse 15, the interpretation of them has to be political. For you and I, it can be spiritual. What are the mountains in our life? Their sin and their death and their Satan all aligned us and coming against us. But what happens when we gain Abraham's standing? What happens when we, through the blood of Jesus Christ, become friends? In fact, Jesus says more than friends. Then verse 10. We get to sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. And I'm in the wrong chapter. <laughs> We get to fear not, for I'm with you. We get to not be dismayed, because he's our God. And he'll strengthen us, he'll help us, uphold us. And our enemies, sin, death, Satan, who come against us, 
ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive against us will perish. God will wipe them out, verse 12, as if they never existed. And even today, God holds our hand and says to us, fear not, I'll help you. And when we're dry, when we're thirsty, and we find no water, verse 17, when our tongues fail for thirst, when God seems far away, when our devotional life is dry, when our prayer seems to be bouncing off the ceiling, God says, I'll hear you. I won't forsake you. And in my timing, I'll pour open rivers and desolate heights, fountains in the midst of valleys, and make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. We go through dry seasons. We go through hours, days, weeks, sometimes, where our spiritual life just seems like a desert. It seems like wilderness. Seems like we've been set into exile. And God says, wait on me. If you're in a desert time, it's because I've allowed it. And you might know the reason, you might not know the reason. We might eventually figure out the reason, we might never know the reason. But if, if it's happening, it's because God's allowed it. But he promises in his time to end it. To pour out his spirit, to refresh us, to encourage us, to revive us. I've been in a little bit of that kind of season it's been hard to pray the way that I want to pray lately. And I'm, I'm tired of talking about COVID and brain fog and, and, and all of that, but it's real. And, 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 the, and, it's, and it's affected my prayer life. But it's interesting, as, as, as much as I often talk about the the negative side of having to experience what you teach. You have to live what you teach, Pastor. Sometimes it, sometimes it works the other way around. This, this morning, some things that I've been praying about, it just like a flood. Things I've been praying about for weeks. For weeks. And, 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 and to the point of, God, are you hearing me? Do you not see why this is important? Do you not care? And I know better, but you know the frustration when you pray the same prayers and, and it, you know, is this thing on? <laughs> is this frequency open? Testing, one, two, three. And all of a sudden, like a flood. Just like a flood. They, 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 it, it, it wasn't piecemeal. It wasn't, well, a little bit with, as a down payment with a promise for more. It just, just all at once. That's how revival comes. It, it's how it comes to us personally. It's how it, if, 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 if God brings another great awakening to our shores, it's how it will come nationally. Right now, we're not in a time of revival as a nation. We're in a dry time. Dry and getting drier. 
wondering if it'll ever end. Is it going to be like this until Jesus returns? Is it going to be dry, drier, driest? And we don't know. Except we know one way or another, whether, whether God the Holy Spirit brings revival to our shores again, or whether Jesus returns and ushers in the greatest revival the world has ever seen, he will, he, will, he will bring torrents of living water to our souls. How do we know? He's proven himself. He just reminded us tonight. He's God who writes history in advance. Didn't abandon Israel. Said to Israel, I'm not going to abandon you, and he didn't. Even though Israel was ripe for judgment, God said, yeah, I'm going to judge you. I'm not going to destroy you. In fact, I'm going to protect you. And when it's time, I'm going to revive you. The same is true for you tonight. Wherever, whatever situation you're in, whatever you're going through, whatever dryness, whatever weakness, maybe you're here tonight and you feel like a worm, hopeless and helpless, forsaken and abandoned. You're here tonight and you're, you're like, Job? Yes. Yes. Only more so. You read the verses that describe Jesus on the cross. You feel that forsaken. God says to you tonight, remember who I am. I'm the covenant-keeping God. And I have promises I will keep for you. Promises to come for you. Promises to deliver you. Promises to revive you. When you doubt, remember who I am. Remember who made the promise. And cling to it. Cling to me. Jesus, thank you for your promises. Thank you that your promises are sure. Thank you that your answers are yes and amen. Thank you that you don't grow weary. You don't faint. You don't take your eyes off of us. You never stop caring about us. You're never not working things out for our very best. And often when you seem the furthest away, the greatest dawn is about to shine. The greatest revival is about to happen. The greatest relief is about to come. Jesus, I pray for each person here tonight, each person listening online, each person catching up on the archives. Remind them of who you are tonight. Bring to their remembrance your past faithfulness in your word and in their lives. The times that against all odds you've come through. You've done miracles. You've performed wonders. You've brought forth life from dry places. Jesus, would you encourage hearts tonight? You will do it again.